0: In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjeet Singh and the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. I'm here today with Rabia Chaudhry, a Pakistani-American attorney, author, and podcast host. I first learned about her while listening to the first season of Serial, which covered the disturbing case of the unjustly imprisoned Adnan Syed. Since then, Rabia wrote a book about his case called Adnan Story, and she started a new podcast focused on similarly unjust cases called Undisclosed. Rabia is a fellow with the New America Foundation and the U.S. Institute of Peace. She's also Punjabi, so you'll have to forgive us for the few moments where we talk about our beloved Punjabi culture. So, I'll start by asking you the same thing I ask all my guests, and that's who are you at your core, and what is it that drives you?
1: At my core, I think of myself as an American Muslim mother, wife, and advocate. I was kind of raised with this, like, my mother always pushed it into us that, look, Your time in this world is really limited. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And I always like have felt this real sense of urgency, like I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. There's things I want to (laughs) do. I think that's what drives me is this sense of there's not enough time in anybody's life to do all the things they want to do. So I better get on it.
0: Is that something that has sort of been transmitted to other people in your family or is is that unique to you?
1: I mean, I I have two younger siblings. Um, they, They both certainly do, you know, community service and do other things in the same way. But I think I absorbed it more. I was the eldest. And I remember, you know, when I was growing up, this is back at the time when there, you know, there's this incredible famine in Ethiopia. And there was just never a day where my mother especially wouldn't talk about what's happening in Chechnya or Ethiopia or Kashmir or Palestine. I mean, it was just, there was always like, there, she always was trying to convey a sense of people are suffering in the world. And what are you going to do about that one day? And just be aware of it. You should know it, mm-hmm. like, you know.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about your about your childhood. Then you know, you're talking about your mother as an influence. You know, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And how did that relate to your spiritual formation?
1: Yeah, so my, I was born in Pakistan in Lahore, Pakistan, and my father came to the United States first. My mother and I joined him like about eight or nine months later. So I was still an infant when I came to the United States. And my dad's a veterinarian, um, and he eventually began working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which meant. Most of our lives growing up, we were just in these little agri- rural agricultural communities in different parts of the country, and every two to three years, he would get transferred somewhere else. So, you know, I grew up in a lot of small-town America type of places where there weren't a lot of Muslims. In fact, the first kind of Muslim community I was around was maybe when I was, like, in middle school, high school. Like, that's around the time I we settled in the area where there were other, were other Muslims, but having said that, I mean, I, I grew up in a home where both my parents are practicing Muslims. My mother was always very, like, by the book. It's all about the law of the religion. Whereas my dad was more like, it's about the spirit of the religion. And, you know, so and we we as a family did fast together. We prayed together. It wasn't that, I mean, but, you know, we're Pakistanis. And I think culture, we, we our family life was influenced a lot more by culture and cultural religious practices more than kind of deeply Islamic practices. Um, but I, I got married pretty young. I was, I was in college when I got married. It was an abusive marriage. It was a really difficult marriage. And that was the point at which as an adult, like when I was 20, 21, I turned in a really serious way to my religion just so I could get through it. And I think that's where things, where faith became more important to me.
0: Can you talk about that? What was it about religion that provided you a source of comfort during that time of abuse,
1: well, you know, uh, Simran, I did the the unthinkable uh, back in the '90s. I married a guy of my own choice. It was a love marriage, as it's known in our communities. And you know, it wasn't one of those things where my parents had me arranged to be married off to anybody else. But it was it was not very common. And my friends at the time, many of them, did have like kind of a range where they're introduced. And so when I entered this marriage, my parent, my father, was all fine with it. My mother wasn't particularly thrilled with it. And then very, very early on in the marriage, within weeks, um, when I started being assaulted by my ex-husband, I felt like I can't tell anybody, you know, nobody wanted, like my parents didn't want me to do this. And I went against their wishes. I can't tell anybody. I was so deeply ashamed. And I had started law school. I couldn't tell my younger sister. I just felt so much shame. I couldn't tell anybody. And so the only person, the only person I could turn to was God, and so. I began praying. I began praying in the middle of the night when everybody and I, and I my ex-husband, like we lived with his entire family. So we're talking about a, a joint family system, 10 of us in, in a, in a home in Virginia. And so when everybody would be asleep at night is when I would get up at like 3am and, and just commune with God by myself.
0: And how did your how did your parents react when you finally told them? were they open? Were they accepting, or were they sort of, you know, you got yourself into this mess, and it's your own fault?
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, like, you know, they, they kind of found found out when the whole thing just fell apart after five years. I had to leave the marriage in the middle of the night. It was pretty traumatic. and um, you know, my father is just one of those people who uh, I don't care at what point I am in my life. He's like, you can always come home. So, that was never a thing Uh, my mother's a little more well my mother was like and we're gonna get revenge and I mean she was very very of course I mean I'm her daughter I'm her eldest her firstborn, so she was really upset and then I had a daughter at that point too and I had a four-year old when the marriage ended so you know I just wanted to handle things in a way that made it best for my daughter without regard to all the adults involved and uh, so, no, my parents were, okay, they were worried. Again, this is uh, back at a time when, I mean, unfortunately, divorce rates are much more common, much higher now that's it's more common, but this was like 2001, until I just finally publicly started saying, I am divorced, I am divorced, I am divorced, um, because I found no shame in it.
0: I remember when I was a teenager, especially, when I would do things or be in places that my parents wouldn't approve of, and then I'd be in a tough situation, and I often wouldn't tell my parents because I was worried that they would disown me. And now, as a father, it just seems so ridiculous to me. Like, there isn't anything my kids could do that I would end up saying to them something like, you know, you're out and I'm not here to help you.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I I do also think there's this cultural thing where, you know, that generation of parents raised you in a way to make you think they they would disown you, but they probably never would. Um, But, you know, the (laughs) the fear of that was like always there. And I, you know, I, I didn't want my parents to hurt either. So it's, they come from a different world. And, uh, it's. It was just, uh, your, my expectation was that they're going to act in that way, in the old school way. But I it, it's not true. I mean, a parent's a parent.
0: Well, let me ask you then, you know, you've come out of this marriage with this feeling of shame that you overcome in a sense. And you were finishing law school and entering as a lawyer and you have this passion for justice. That's sort of been a thread throughout your professional career. And could you talk about where that comes from and how that manifests itself in your life?
1: I trace it really again to my mother i just she would always say to us and it was like always be at the dinner table so this was like our light dinner table conversation she'd always say and this is actually based in a uh, in a muslim tradition that you know when you die you're going to be you know you're going to be held to account and you have to account for certain things you're going to be held to account for what you did with your time you did with your youth you did with your health like all the gifts that god gave you your education like these are not like You're not entitled to any of this, but when it's gifted to you, what did you do with it? And the whole point of all of that is to do something for somebody else with it. And so, I mean, I remember hearing that so many times that my mom's like, God's going to take hisab, which means account. He's going to ask you, what did you do with it? What did you do with all the time I gave you and the education and the skills and being in America and all this other stuff. And right out of law school is, you know, that was 9-11 happened. And suddenly the community had a completely different set of needs and I saw it. And there weren't, we didn't have a lot of lawyers. We didn't have, I mean, we didn't even have, I don't even care existed then. Like there weren't a lot of advocacy organizations for Muslims then. Certainly Muslim advocates didn't exist. I just jumped in headfirst and I ended up being like one of those poor lawyers for a long time just doing community work. I've experienced a lot of things which then adds to my kind of arsenal of empathy for others. And how do you then look away from that? So I just feel compelled to do something for other people. I mean, earning money, earning money is important. Look, you got to raise families, you got to have stability, you'll have to take care of your parents, but it can't just all be about you. What a terrible life that would be.
0: Yeah. Well, is I wonder is it still, you know, you you talked about the dinner conversations with your mother and and what it meant to be held to account. Is that still something that you think about? Is it something you believe? Is it something you pass on to your children?
1: It is something I absolutely believe. I mean, I, from a very young age, my daughters, I have two daughters and a son. Now when he's a little bit older, I'll get him involved too. But my daughters, uh, I've almost always taken them with me like to, to community meetings, to board meetings, to interfaith events, to charity, you know, to service events, uh, from very young age, they've always like just kind of been there. They've seen me speak. They, you know, uh, now you know my I have a twenty two year old she's graduated from college and then I have my eleven year old my twenty two year old has um, in college been very active uh, with community work and and student government life and all of this stuff and so I can see it in her you know I can see that she's got a little bit of the bug with the eleven year old we still have yet to see right now she's really into her hairstyle <laughs> and glitter and slime and <laughs> it's a little early but but, you know, and my husband, you know, because I, I did get remarried after four five years. And, uh, you know, my husband is a chaplain, a Muslim chaplain, and he runs a service organization for the last six years, a nonprofit that does um, homeless shelter services all around the D.C. area. And my daughters will go to that. And so I think, you know, I hope that they are learning by example.
0: Do you like what you're hearing from Rabia so far? Then let me tell you about her podcast you're tired of hearing from the same old demographic of news pundits and looking for a fresh political perspective, look no further than the 45th podcast. Hosted by attorneys Rabia Choudhury and Susan Simpson, known best for their hit criminal justice podcast Undisclosed, the 45th takes a weekly look at all the politics, policies, and problems of the 45th presidential administration of the United States. Chaudhry and Simpson give you a weekly recap of the most important political stories, astute analysis of the legal and social implications of the stories, and connect the dots between the avalanche of news we face in the Trump presidency. The 45th features guest newsmakers, experts, and cultural icons like W. Kamau Bell, Governor Michael Dukakis, Wajahat Ali, Siraj Hashmi, and Kumail Nanjiani to bring a diverse range of perspectives on the issues of the day. The 24-hour news cycle may have moved on, but The 45th podcast will be there to examine the developments that deserve a second look. So check out The 45th to be the best politically informed person you know, and subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Audioboom, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you would remember this, but our first time I met you was actually at a, a mosque in, in Boston, and it was a, a media and social media training that you were doing for Um,
1: I do remember. And I
0: was struck then by your commitment to, I mean, you were really, you were traveling around the country and meeting with folks in your community who were being marginalized and saying, you know, I recognize this need and I want to help you. And, and I mean, it was a massive commitment on your part and it coheres really closely with what you're describing in terms of this post nine 11 moment where you say, I had these other opportunities I decided to do this kind of law because I saw a need and I wanted to fill it. So many people had that sort of observation, but not everybody made those kinds of decisions. And I wonder why Why is it that you felt so moved uh, or have felt so moved to continue doing this type of work?
1: I don't know what else I would do with myself. This, this, this administration has completely transformed the landscape of like, alliances and like you know like it's like the canaries in the coal mine have been yelling about this stuff forever but like muslim communities and other marginalized communities and immigrant communities like others didn't get it democrats didn't even get it it wasn't until this guy shows up and says muslim ban that suddenly he's like oh wait a minute we get it but we've this is this has been a slow long boil this is this guy did not come out of nowhere it's been a slow, long boil since 9-11 to get to this point. And I remember around the time that I was doing the social media training, our communities were in a really tough position because what was happening was you're seeing the rise of these all kinds of extremist groups online, white nationalist groups, two jihadi groups. And they were preying on our, like the kids in our communities. And then you had our communities fighting back in ways that just, they didn't know how to use social media. They weren't effective. They're being victimized both here and by these entities, like they're trying to Seduce her kids to come overseas and fight. At the same time, we can't work with law enforcement because we've been screwed by law. It was such a difficult time. I feel like we're over that hump. I think much of the American public now understands and is hopefully feeling shame for the post 9 11 hysteria that was directed at our communities. And, uh, you know, one day I really hope I, the work I do now is mostly the wrongful conviction work, but I can't stop thinking about the post 9 11 terror trials that took place, complete shams, complete shams. I mean, and I sat through a number of them because they were right here in the Ford Circuit in Virginia. And uh, and I keep thinking about these young men who are like maybe 16, 17, or even grown men who just got caught in these entrapment schemes by the feds and who's going to tell their stories. I do think this country is now ready for those stories. They weren't before.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm hearing from you is this urge to step in in a moment of need, and for people who don't have access to resources and are being treated, I mean, incredibly unjustly. And, you know, you're describing that in sort of the post-9-11 terrorist trials, um, but what you're perhaps best known for now is is your work on uh, Adnan Syed's case. And so I wonder how those things tie together. Is that is that similar? Is, there, is, is Adnan's case different because it was personal? Did that come first and that informed... Um, your legal interests or was it the other way around that you were that you were following these these post 9-11 cases and you were like you know what something's something's wrong in Adnan's case as well
1: I was in law school when Adnan was arrested I was still in that abusive marriage and I knew nothing about the criminal justice system at all. That was my first interaction with it as a law student, sitting through his trial, horrified at what I was seeing. And so that experience informed my career choices to the extent that I decided I can never do criminal law because there is just the disproportionate power in this. Like I didn't have the heart to to do it. I just, I, di- I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I was really, I mean, I think the whole community was really traumatized by the experience. And then nine 11 happened again. Uh, this is like literally the year after that his trial. And so what very early on in my career, I saw the nexus between immigration and civil rights issues and how immigration policy was used, you know, and national security policy, the nexus of these issues, which I don't know if a lot of people in our community really realized this stuff. And I remember for years, for years, in, in, in the years after 9-11, for at least six, seven years, talking to different Muslim organizations and saying, listen, we, we cannot let the Latino organizations like fight this battle alone. Immigration is our issue. And they would say, no, it's not. I couldn't believe it. They would say, no, it's not. They would say, no, that's, that's a Latino issue. Our issue is terrorism, uh, def- civil rights, how to deal with law enforcement, which is, yes, true but I was like, but you don't understand (laughs) because a lot of, a lot of folks weren't familiar with the special registration stuff and all these other. And so I have seen that nexus for a while. Now Adnan's place was like completely not inside that orbit. But one, one thing I realized when serial happened and it blew up was that I felt like my entire career kind of prepared me for that moment because in the years leading up to serial in my own career, I had been doing the social media stuff. I had been doing the public speaking and writing. I was kind of prepared to, once Serial ended, not let the story end. And I also learned a very important lesson from Serial, which was that advocates tend to lead with data, issues, you know, research, and none of that matters. Nobody cared about Adnan because of mass incarceration as a big issue or juvenile justice. They cared about Adnan as a kid. Adnan Syed's story has captivated millions since the 2014 launch of the podcast Serial, turning listeners into armchair
0: detectives.
1: And after Serial, me and two other attorneys picked up the case, we continued with another podcast because there was just so much more to the case. And since then, it's been five years now, we've, after we were done, we were just approached by Innocence Projects and lawyers and defendants to look at other wrongful convictions and we've done about 15 of them now. So um and we spend years investigating and then we tell a story through a podcast and it works.
0: So tell me you said you said earlier that you didn't have the heart to get into criminal law. But now you're doing the, <laughs> this work which seems to me much more emotionally taxing. So so what's what's the difference here? What's going on?
1: Well the difference is I'm I'm much older. I'm 45 years old. I was 22 then and uh you know, I I was 22, I had a young daughter, I had a family of 10 in-laws that I was responsible for and uh you know, running a household. I just the demand I didn't have the and also I, I you know, I was in an abusive situation. I was I felt like a victim. Um I just didn't feel empowered enough to do it. And I'm not the same person. Hmm. You know, I'll tell you something. I, at the age of 44, a year ago, for the first time in my life, started getting actual professional therapy. I never did that before. (laughs) Culturally, it doesn't happen. Like we just, as a community, we don't really think about it, believe it. We just think, you know, you suck it up or you pray some more and you'll be fine or it's a test from God or whatever. There's a million ways to deflect on this. Um, And what I have learned, and and I've just learned so much in, in this past year or so, Um, when I was 21, I was sexually assaulted by an acquaintance. And that was something that I didn't talk about for decades. And I still don't really publicly talk too much about the details, but you know, I just kind of carried it all with me and just kept going because I didn't feel like I had an option, not like who's going to, when I'm a single mother, who's going to take care of my daughter, who's going to do this, who's Mm going to pay my bills. I could not go back home. I didn't, I, much of it was because I just, I don't have a choice but to go forward and, there are other people who are like relying on me. And it's like, how do I say, well, I just, I can't do it. It's emotionally too much. I'm going to sit down, but it doesn't mean it goes away. You carry your trauma forever. But one thing I did realize I, is that I, I have resilience because I am blessed that I would grow up in a home that was not an abusive space. It, there was no addiction issues or on abuse issues. And a lot of people are not blessed to grow up in those spaces. And that's why they might not be as resilient. So I don't want, I can't take any credit for that. But I, I think my, the resilience for me and um, most people comes from the fact that they did come from supportive, loving, safe homes. And I. so I give my parents credit for that. And what I know is that my parents have said, you know, with or without us, you, it's you. And at the end of the day, at the beginning of your life, the end of your life, it's going to be you and God. Just remember that.
0: I, I I know that you have a lot of um, critics inside of the Muslim community and outside of it, but I wonder how do you how do you deal with that? Is what's the dialogue internally? Do you take it well? Do you brush it off?
1: I mean, I think you know when when it first started happening, the first time you are collectively attacked on social media. I mean, it's comes. I mean, it's so it was so unexpected because you know this happened. These attacks began happening maybe when I was already like ten or twelve or fifteen years into my career as an advocate for the Muslim community having done so much, you feel like they know, they know what I stand for. My people know me. And then suddenly it's like, wait, what? Um, how do you not know my intentions and my worldview on, you know what I mean? Like we're all working for the same thing, but we don't have to agree on the same method. Um, it was, it it made me physically sick for at least a year, year and a half. It was really hard. I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, just just respond um and that's like the worst thing to do uh is to you know tweet back Mm -hmm. write Mm -hmm. back write blogs to say no let me explain this no and then i it just kind of clicked and and i was like it's i gotta choose i either gotta do my work or i gotta get stuck in this muck and i said i'm gonna do my work Uh, and it's ongoing i mean it's five six years later it's still it still pops up every so often and i'm like "It's, it's okay i can still do my work if i can help some an innocent man get home, or an innocent woman get home from prison. i want to still do my work. You don't have to like me. It's okay.
0: What is it that you hope for the future? What, what's your vision? What's your what's your goals? What do you what do you hope to see?
1: I mean, what I'm ho- I mean, what I'm hoping for myself is that I continue to do work that that drives me, that makes me want to get up every single day and keep going at it. I. What I've, what I've learned about doing any kind of advocacy work, it's never about the end result. You want the end, you want an end result. You want success. Success is never guaranteed. And sometimes it takes lifetimes. People put in lifetimes of work where maybe three generations down, you finally see the fruit of that labor. Our job is just to do the work and then you leave the success or the results to God, to whatever, you know? And so as long as I'm able to continue to do the work, you know, I'm in this, I'm I'm doing the wrongful conviction work. I'm, I feel really like empowered to do it right now I feel like I have all the tools to do it and I see the impact it has on the families you know we've helped uh, we've assisted in like seven exonerations so far that's a big deal and every one of those stories I mean every one of those stories makes me cry every one of those stories you know I'm emotionally invested in and maybe it's just seven individual lives and people think so what's a big deal Um, but every one of those lives is important to me. So I want to continue to do this work at the same time, you know, as I grow older, there's a part of me, even though I didn't grow up in the homeland, like, like my blood misses the homeland. Uh, and I would love, I would love to do some justice work there or do something to give back to the place that I came from. Um, and in broader society, I just, God, it's just, it's heartbreaking to see us get more and more polarized and the hate and, Frankly, it's scary. It's scary. I'm scared for my kids. I worry for my kids in this country. I don't know.
0: Sometimes in life, you see people who are so unfailing in their fearlessness and integrity that it's hard not to be inspired. Rabia is one of those people for me. Her moral compass is so strong and clear. It's amazing to see her take extraordinary heat unflinchingly because she believes so resolutely in the principle of equal justice. I'm grateful to Rabia for her leadership and for sharing her stories and wisdom with us. Thank you to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network and the Venley team for their support. Shout out to my brother, Rajuju, for theme music. And thanks to all y'all for listening. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. That's your call, and talk to y'all later.